All right, uh, those of you who are sticking around, welcome. Good to see you. Uh, listen, open up your Bibles to Luke 12. We're wrapping up um, the 12th chapter this morning. And in this Advent season, we are in another kind of Advent passage in Luke. The most famous Advent passage, of course, is in the early chapters where it talks about the first coming of Christ. We're in some passages where Jesus is, uh, is now unveiling to his disciples uh, there's a second Advent coming, uh, that there's one still coming in the future. Last week, we looked at the return of Christ. And before we jump to the rejoicing nature of Christ coming back, we ought to ponder this sober truth. If we don't respect his coming back, if we don't respect the implications of his coming back, there won't be rejoicing. Those who respect the implications of Jesus Christ coming back are in for rejoicing. But remember the whole idea of getting caught, of getting surprised? You can get caught doing something good. You can get caught doing something that's expected. Or you can get caught doing something wrong. And one brings reward, one brings punishment. And so it is with Christ's return. These are the words he was teaching us last week. Look at this passage from Colossians 3. It says this. It says, If you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Throughout the scriptures, throughout Jesus' teaching, there is an if-then nature to the message of the kingdom of God. If you've been raised with Christ, it's not assumed that all are raised with Christ. It implies that it's not automatic, and that's really what the heart of this morning's message is all about. The passage goes on to say this. Listen to verse 4 carefully because it's not going to be on the screen. It says, when Christ appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. It is a foregone conclusion to the New Testament authors. It is a foregone conclusion to Jesus Christ, and he's imparting it to his followers. I am coming again. It couldn't be more clear of a promise that he is sure that he's returning and wants us to know that. Here is what today is all about. Kind of like a doctor prescribing um, a prescription, Jesus gives us two very, very clear action items for the world to hear and to follow. If you are sitting here thinking, I want to make sure that I'm here and ready for Christ when he returns. How do I know if I'm in? How do I know if I'm accepted? What must I do to be saved? Then this morning is for you. Maybe some of you say, Dave, I've already settled that. That's a settled foregone conclusion. Here's what this week's study did for me. Maybe it's already settled in your mind. And because you're certain of Christ's return, and because you're certain that his surprise on the earth will mean great rejoicing for some and great terror for others, you are concerned for those who have not placed their trust in Jesus Christ. As I reread this and restudied this passage this morning, it not only rekindled my affirmation of the vows I made to Jesus Christ as a very young child, but it also stirred in me a heart, a fresh heart to be able to communicate that and love my neighbors as myself by communicating the message to them. Here are the two ideas. Number one is to count the cost. Count the cost means this. The gift that comes to you in the person of Jesus Christ is free of charge, but it comes with a cost of ownership. Jesus says count the cost before saying yes. But secondly, there's a really clear demand to answer the call. The gift comes free of charge, but it requires a decision to accept or not accept. So we're going to look at those uh, together. There's not a whole lot of fill-in. So if you're a person who needs to take notes to stay awake, I'm leaving it on you to just write stuff in. Don't wait for the screen to change a bunch. You're going to need to stay dialed in. Okay, So jot down what's helpful to you. Jot down what questions you have. Uh, jot down what things God might be saying. Let's look first at count the cost. The idea that following Jesus brings division as a part of the cost of ownership. One of the things I noticed about this passage was this. There are two gospels of this age that Jesus is very clearly preaching against. One of the gospels of this age is this, that of inclusion and tolerance as a highest value. 
And Jesus comes and says there are values that are higher than peace at all costs. And when you really dig in to give peace a chance, much of the time, it means um, either, you know, kind of believe in, in what I do or those things that, that we disagree on. Let's keep all of those important things quiet. So look at verse 49, Luke chapter 12, and I'm going to just read this passage in two chunks this morning. We're going to take verse 49 to verse 53. It says this, Jesus talking, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two or two against three. And they will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother-in-law, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Whoa, this doesn't sound very Christmassy. I mean, this just ruined a ton of great Christmas carols. Peace on earth and goodwill toward men. How about turmoil on earth and confrontation towards everyone? Right? I mean, like, think of all these things that we sing about, talk about, say, write on our Christmas cards, and you hear from the mouth of Jesus, I did not come to bring peace. I came to bring division? What is this all about? Think about this for a second. Did the angels come and declare peace on earth? Yes. Did the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 9, 6 promise a prince of peace? Yes. Did Jesus himself promise his disciples, I will give you my peace? Yes. Those are all true statements. So why all this crazy talk about Jesus being an arsonist, like coming as a fire starter? What's that all about? Don't we want our glad tidings, our peace on earth, no crying he makes, meek and mild, a little cuddly baby? We love that part of the Christmas story. That's the stuff we write down. That's the stuff we all want to talk about. But a closer look at the Christmas story, sort of taking the American holiday lens off and just having a plain, wide open reading of the scripture reveals tons that it seems like we tend to gloss over. And frankly, the scriptures reveal clues that serious turmoil is on the horizon, okay? We're talking first advent now, the first Christmas. Here we go. Think about Simeon. Simeon's a prophet, and he prophesies this, that this child, Jesus, will is destined to cause the fall and rising of many in Israel. That's right in the Christmas story. You'll probably hear that read this, this Christmas season. He also says this, that he will be opposed by many. And then he looks at Mary and he says, your very soul, mom, will be pierced with pangs. So there's this dark undertone to what he's prophesying. How about the angels? Do they pronounce peace on earth? Yes, they do. But the peace on earth isn't universal. It's not assumed for all. Listen really carefully to what the actual proclamation was in Luke 2.14. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Men with whom he is pleased presupposes what? That there are men with whom God is not pleased. The advent of Jesus Christ brings about division. It brings about turmoil. One of your community group questions this week is this. Think of all the Christmas songs, our favorite Christmas songs, that actually have tons of really tumultuous things built into them. We were listening to Burl Ives' Christmas uh, yesterday as we're decorating our tree. And it's kind of interesting because if you want to hear very, 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 very early rap, he's sort of rapping on it because he just sort of talks. He doesn't really sing as much on it. But in there, I'm hearing little tidbits of far as the curse is found. I mean, just woven all through Christmas. If we get out of sort of glossing over it, there's the real story. If we have careful eyes wide open reading, it makes it plain that the advent, the arrival, the appearance of Jesus brings about both rejoicing and sheer terror. P 
peace and tumultuous times. It's welcomed and it's opposed. Now, here's the kicker. The appearance of Jesus did bring that. We have history to see that. And Jesus is promising my appearance will bring that. So my appearance does bring rejoicing and terror. My, my appearance will bring rejoicing and terror. If your idea of Jesus is only merciful and mild, sort of this lamb-toting, uh, children around smiling, uh, sort of that feathered hair look Jesus, that I, that's the one I grew up with in all the pictures, um, it's not the real Jesus. Someone is glossing over whole chunks of scripture that came right from his mouth. Jesus says, I came as a fire starter. We've already seen this in Luke. He brings division. He brings civic unrest. Violence breaks out when Jesus shows up. Mobs form and riot. Yelling picks up. Not only do accusations throw, but stones begin to be thrown. I mean, things are flying around and disruption comes when Jesus shows up. Jesus divides people not just at the end of the age, but every day in every age. Now, the whole idea that Jesus says, I'm going to bring division, keep in mind this. It's not that his goal is, I'm going to come and try to divide things up. Rather, it's a result of what he came to do. So he shows up and division happens based on who he is. So the division going on, all this confrontation is a result, think about it, the people sat in a great darkness and a great light shows up. A result of that is division. So Jesus didn't come with, this, with the end goal of, of division, but that's more of a result. It's a byproduct of what he came to do. If you look carefully at the historical Jesus, the historical actual Jesus is not someone that you can remain neutral about. One of the things that I, I believe the enemy of this age has caused in our culture, it's, it's going away. But certainly when I was growing up, this was a common thought. I don't really believe in Jesus the way that you do. But I don't want to say I deny him because we still had all these sort of religious cultural roots. We, people didn't want to do that. So they said this comment. They said, I believe he was a good teacher. I don't think he was the son of God. I don't think he was, you know, a nut job and, and someone doing evil. I think he was a good teacher. C.S. Lewis famously said this. He said, let us not pander ourselves and think that Jesus has left that open as an option. He did not leave the option of good moral teacher on the table. In his famous words, he was either the Lord, who he said he was, or he was a liar. You wouldn't call a liar a good moral teacher. Jesus is making pronouncements. He is saying things. And if it's not true, then he's willfully doing that. That makes him a liar. That means you would never want to follow any of his teaching. So he's a Lord, he's a liar, or he says he's a lunatic. On par with someone saying they're the queen of England or a poached egg. So Jesus doesn't leave this middle road of, well, he's a good teacher. He's definitely not the son of God. He's not a bad guy. He said some good things. You can't remain neutral on Jesus. Do you see how division is just a part of how Jesus set it up? We can't just stay neutral on it if we look at the historical Jesus. If we leave him in the glossy, feather-haired, lamb-toting, uh, sash-wearing uh, Jesus from the flannel gram, then he's okay. He's a good little guy. We can just kind of keep him there. Cute little baby, warms our heart, doesn't demand anything of us. But if we look at the historical Jesus, we cannot do that. This good Dr. Jesus came preaching a fiery diagnosis that was terrifying. This is the fire that he talks about in this passage. It's an exceedingly painful treatment. But then he proceeds to take the treatment on himself. This is the baptism that was his, that was coming to him. He says he's in great turmoil until the baptism is completed. Why does Jesus take this fiery treatment on himself so that we don't have to? I mean, built right into this message is the gospel. 
There is fiery punishment for the sins of man, for as the curse is found. And I have set before me, it's the very reason I came, to complete the mission my Father has given me, which is to be baptized, not, not the kind we do to follow him, but this baptism ordeal of taking on the sins of mankind. I said this a couple of weeks ago, that um, if we leave Jesus in kind of the, the kindly hippie mode, we miss, we miss who he is. Jesus isn't the kindly hippie, and he doesn't have like vitamins to offer you to help with your holiday cheer, to improve your life as sort of an add-on offer. That's not what Jesus came to offer. Instead, Jesus is a warrior strongman. Jesus is the warrior God who rescues his people, who fights for them, who drowns the opposing army in the Red Sea, provides the way of escape, and then provides their very meal and provides direction for them and gives them the promised land that he promised. Jesus is the embodiment of that warrior God. So Jesus' prescription doesn't enhance your life like vitamins. It saves your life something like a tourniquet. That's what's on the line in what he comes to do. And unlike any before Jesus or unlike any after Jesus, I want you to think about world religions. I want you to think about secularists who have their belief system based simply on the material world. Think of all world belief systems and purveyors of truth. Jesus prescribes himself as the medicine. Jesus says this, I don't just know the way, point to the way, or walk the path to follow. He says, I am the path. Similarly, he doesn't say, I just, I just know about truth, or let me teach you truth, or let me sort of model truth for you. Jesus said these words, I am the truth. And Simon thinks, he doesn't say, I, I know about the life. Here's the life. Let me show you the life. He says, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the medicine. And here's what he's saying in this passage. That taking him has some definite side effects. Specifically this morning, what is it? Division. You will be divided with people that you love. I want you to think about counting the cost. Has any of you ever been offered something? And this is just an internal question. I often ask questions I actually want you to answer. Just think about this. Have you ever been offered something for free and you had to make a decision, do I receive this or not? And the reason it gave you pause is it wasn't something small. It was something big that you could foresee had a cost of ownership attached to it. My wife and I were relatively young married. We had a few small babies in the house. I was a youth pastor at a different church. We had this great family that, um, that loved us and made us the offer at one point. They said, we have this ski boat that we've raised our kids skiing. It's got a trailer. It's, it's got a boat and all this. You always take the youth group water skiing and wakeboarding and stuff. We'd love for you to have it. Would you, would you want to have this boat? And I sat there and I knew immediately, cost of ownership. I was getting it for free. It's an older boat. Do boats cost money? Any of you boat owners? Yes, I mean, every water ski trip I had ever been on, uh, there's a prop broken, there's this broken, there's lacquer that's missing, there's this that's not working. So not only do they cost money, um, every boat I've ever been on seems to need work in the moment. Do you know who stinks at working on cars? Me! Do you know who can project that he'd probably stink working on old boats? Me! So I immediately knew there's a cost of ownership, just, just having the thing, but then storage, time know-how. And I sat there with my dear wife trying to make it work. I thought, we're getting a ski boat. How great is this? Guess who's never owned a ski boat? Me. Guess who thanks his dear wife for pointing out how dumb that would be. There was a cost of ownership to getting this boat that we, mostly she, saw it would be really dumb to take this boat. So there's a cost of ownership. Jesus never puts out the idea 
of a free gift without giving this well-rounded picture of preparation to say, here carefully, before you sign on this dotted line, here really carefully, this is going to cost you. This is going to cost you something. Choosing Jesus is forsaking all others as your first love. We understand the cost of, of, of a vow on, on a wedding day, right? In fact, that's part of a marriage vow oftentimes. Forsaking all others as long as you both shall live. There's a cost to committing to Jesus as your first love. Receiving the gift of salvation, peace with God, comes with a price tag. You know what it is? It's turmoil with people. It means that this first love that you are choosing will, by its very nature, it will actually increase the turmoil level of even your most dear and precious relationships, those inside your own home. Do you see how unchristlike it is to offer Jesus without disclosing the true nature of the decision? Do you see how wicked it would be to try to get people to make a bunch of decisions quickly, 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 and only to have them find out later, wait a minute, what? That's what it means to be a Christian? No one ever told me that. That is an unchristlike, in the truest sense of the, form, of the word, way to evangelize. Remember this. We talked about this repeatedly because it shows up repeatedly in, in the scriptures. You never, as a Christian, need to stir up trouble or controversy or confrontation, ever. You follow Jesus closely, I promise you, it will find you. Trouble, controversy, misunderstanding, abuse, name-calling, mocking, ignoring. You've experienced it. You know what I'm talking about. We see Jesus. It found Jesus. If you name the name of Jesus, if you follow after Jesus, not only does it stand to reason that it's going to follow you, Jesus said this would happen. If they beat up on the teacher, how much more the students? So confrontation is part of the game. I was thinking about why this is so, and, and as we saw with the, think about Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the. And what we looked at with that is all these things that Jesus said, you're blessed if you live and do these things, seem so upside down. It's like take the word and flip it upside down, and then make the word go backwards. Everything is so upside down and backwards that anyone walking in an opposite direction to the way the world is going like you're just bumping into people. You're annoying people. Why? Because all you're doing is following after the light, right? And, and it, it will by default just put you in conflict with other people. Now, I want to give you this, uh, this really interesting thing that, that popped up. Um, as an illustration, but also as sort of an update on a ministry that, that, that we support here at this church. One of the things that happens sometimes is Ben and I will be here, or Andres, or Kelly, or whoever's around, and people will sometimes walk in the doors, and they will, they will ask for, uh, they will ask for, in a way, like financial vitamins. They have a need of gas, they have a need of food, they have some sort of need of handout. And in, in a regular basis, I say, listen, Sometimes we do. You church provide vitamins, financial vitamins to people who come in and ask once in a while. But I never ever hand things out without asking a series of questions, trying to find out where they're at. And here's what I offer. I say, listen, we're a small church. Many of us are struggling. Most of us are struggling to make it in the Silicon Valley. This is a tough place. I said, you know what this church offers? This church offers not just vitamins, but our specialty is is medicine. And the medicine comes in the form of this. I say what we really offer are people at this church who deeply care about you, stranger that I just met. And I've watched it before and I extend it to you. There will be people at this church who will offer you genuine care, genuine friendship, and genuine long-term help. Very specifically in the form of budget mentoring where we offer you something that keeps you out of needing to have these little things. Now, in a hundred people who come and ask for financial vitamins, what do you think the number is that take me up on the offer of long-term help versus short-term help? 
Give me a percentage. Call it out. 2%, anecdotally, not scientific, it's for sure less than five, probably close to, to two or one. It's not zero, praise God. But no one in here was like, what? People don't take long-term budget mentoring over a gift card, over cash. By the way, we don't give out cash. So what a person is doing, think about this. A person who is coming in is doing a cost-benefit analysis right? Simply by coming in, they, they are counting the cost. Do I want to show my face in a church? Do I want to take the time to talk to some pastor? Do I want to take the time to ask, ask, answer his questions? I thought he would just give me something. Then they're asking this question, cost-benefit analysis. They are counting the cost. Do I want to believe what he's saying? Do I want to enter into long-term help or do I want just kind of a quick fix? So I want to have Rich Henderson come up right now. Rich is the, you may not know this. We have someone famous sitting with us every single Sunday. <laughs> Rich Henderson is, is the head of Love in the Name of Christ for all of Santa Clara County. And that's a powerful thing. South Santa Clara. We, we changed it. It was changed recently. We changed it. Like I, I, I did it. I didn't do it. Um, but he heads up this ministry, we give to it, and I wanted you to, to hear from him some really powerful examples of this uh, in effect. So, Rich. Yeah, thank you, Dave. Yeah. So, uh, for those that don't know me, I'm Rich Henderson. I'm a member here at uh, NBC. I'm the director of uh, Love, Inc., or Love in the Name of Christ, of South San Jose. We changed about three years ago from all the county to South San Jose. And uh, Love, Inc. forms, for those that are, aren't familiar with us, we uh, Love, Inc. forms when churches decide they want to work together to help people in need in their community. And that happened here in uh, our area about 30 years ago. Um, the mission statement of uh, Love, Inc., there's about 135 Love, Inc. affiliates around the country, so we're not the only one, but the mission statement of Love, Inc. is to, trans, uh, to mobilize local churches to transform lives and communities in the name of Christ. And what's frustrated me in the 30 years that I've been involved in Love, Inc., since its beginning, I was 13 years as a pastor of a Love, Inc. network church and now 17 years as, as director, is that I wasn't seeing a whole lot of life transformation. And as I worked it through the Lord and prayed about it, gave me a couple insights. One insight is that we were not applying biblical strategies for helping people in need. A lot of our strategies were really... Uh, formed after the American culture, and they weren't working, no surprise. Uh, the other is that life transformation comes through the gospel, and it comes through relationships with other people. Um, one of the things that we realized is a lot of the services that we offer at Love, Inc., like home repairs and yard work and house cleanup and that kind of thing, were not really conducive to uh, uh, long-term relationships. And we had one that was. That was our uh, budget uh, budget mentoring. Uh, we've been running a budget mentoring uh, program for 13 years, and this year we t totally revamped it, did a, a whole new uh, thing. We called it even a new name. It's now called Comprehensive Transformational Ministry, and that it was a choice, comprehensive and transformational. That's what we're looking for. Uh, the program is now 36 weeks long, so nine months long, meeting every single week, and um, there's three classes that they go through. The, uh, the goal of the classes is to share the gospel. It goes progressively deeper from one class to the next. Uh, there's uh, uh, savings incentives that they get. They could end up with a $2,000 emergency savings fund, and 70% uh, of that comes from Love, Inc. The rest is a match of their uh, savings. Um, the uh, starting week seven, they meet with a budget coach meet weekly with a budget coach and open up their finances and talk about how they're going to live under a budget. Um, so what were the results? I want, want to share you a story from a lady I'll call Sandy, 58 years old, went through our uh, program, and uh, this is what she shared. She said that it exceeded expectations. And then she says, all phases were enjoyable, but the final phase with the book Becoming What God Intended was life-changing. Um, for the last two and a half months, I've been commuting from Sacramento to get to class. It was worth driving all that way to get the knowledge the class gave me. The class really got better as it went along. You really start to care about the people in the class. I didn't know that I was special to God because of the choices I've made without him. Now I know that God loves me like I love my kids. He just loves us freely. I didn't know that in my heart before. I've had miscarriages that I thought were karma, God evening the score. Knowing that I'm loved and special is enormously freeing for me. 
Regarding finances, I've always felt I wasn't worthy to earn money. Knowing that I'm special to God and he loves me changed that mindset. I can earn freely and give freely. I talked to uh, Sandy about this idea that a lot of people call Love, Inc. asking for money, and very few are willing to go through our uh, 36-week program. And she said this, uh, said that getting money to meet an immediate need is almost like a fix. I've just got to get the money this time, and everything will be better. Now, get this. The quick fix is staying in the same place. This class has helped me see the problem was that I didn't have a deep connection with God. It's exactly what I needed for this stage of my life. Um, tomorrow, I'll post our brand-new uh, Heartbeat newsletter on our website, loveincssj.org, that gives a whole report on our latest, uh, uh, our first round of this kind of ministry, comprehensive transformational ministry. Um, there's some ways that you can get involved. Uh, first of all, uh, on the back uh, table is the brochure for the 2019 program, the one that just ended. It's, it's not exactly like what we're offering next year, but it's enough like it that you get an idea and encourage you to take one of these. You might need to go through this, or you might know somebody that needs to go through this. Uh, the other thing is we need help uh, this coming round. We need budget coaches. We need backup budget coaches. The first 12 weeks, we offer a dinner with every meal. It's part of the relationship building that goes on. And we're looking for small groups or people to host those, uh, those dinners. Um, so if you're, uh, if you're willing to do that, come up and talk with me, but, uh, want to give you a little bit of an update on, uh, what's going on there and, uh, ties right in. Thanks, Dave. All right. So counting the cost is a vital first step, but it's not the only step. Let me, let me move on to, uh, to the second part, a decision that no one else can make for you. So part two is just answer the call. Following Jesus requires a decision by each person. Look at verse 54. Verse 54, he says this. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say there will be a scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? Then he gives a little story. As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way. Lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Not only does Jesus go against our cultural uh, sort of gospel of inclusion and peace and that division is bad, but in this passage, he goes against sort of the climate and material world experts who are, who are loud voices in the public square and yet are clueless in matters of spirituality because they've, many have just disregarded that as a thing. It's possible to be really, really smart, and yet clueless about what matters most. Now, I know that everyone in this room has their favorite weatherman. Mine, of course, is Bill Martin, uh, Channel 2. He's an incredible guy. He's a, the funniest weatherman you'll ever meet. I don't even know if he intends to be super funny, but years into him being my favorite, my kids know I'm watching the news when I go, Bill! Because it's like he's just so great about how he delivers the weather. Um, so I know you have your favorite weatherman, um, but, but you may not have planned on having your weatherman forecast at your funeral. I thought it'd be a fun twist on my funeral if we could get Bill Martin to come and just do the, do, do the forecast. Wouldn't that be a, kind of an odd way to, to kick off a funeral? Um, now, now, sort of reverse engineering, I just thought it'd be fun, just to be kind of quirky and weird. I haven't officially asked him yet, but I'm going to. Um, but sort of reverse engineering this, I thought, man... How, how, like, how, how great of a picture would it paint to have the weather forecast when you're viewing the eternal step of life and death, like life in this world and stepping into the next world? Like how piddly and small and insignificant does it matter what's happening with the Gulf Stream, right? Or the clouds coming this way or what's happening with, with the weather. Here's what I thought about. Every segment of every news channel, every day, 
has the weather. On top of that, they have all kinds of reports about things, day in and day out. Experts are giving us the news. And yet, when I think about it, there's nothing in the news that nurtures your soul. There's nothing in the news that really mentions ethics or morality or the spiritual realm. Over and over and over, all day, we're sending reporters at great expense to all these different locations to report on things. And yet, at the end of the day, it's, oh, it's going to be a scorcher. Ah, nor'easter's coming up. And we just talk about these things that are here today and gone tomorrow. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present times? Let me step on your toes. Are you an expert in celebrities' lives? Are you an expert in sports? Are you an expert in music or pop culture? Are you an expert in fashion or technology or politics? Are you a business guru who can forecast all the things about the markets? It's even possible for you to be an expert in theology and the goings-on of religious-type talk, all the while not knowing how to interpret the present times. Psalm 90.12 says this, So teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. The Greeks knew time to live in sort of two different realms, and they had words for it. The first word is chronos, which we get chronology, chronicle, chronic. We know this word, right? This is the time of clock and calendar. It's time as a gauntlet. It's an onward march that never stops. As Mark Buchanan puts it, he says, chronos is the presiding deity of the driven. I would say chronos reigns and rules the Silicon Valley. There are many people who know what time it is. But the Greeks had a second word. The second word was charon. This is time as gift, as an opportunity, as a season. Those orienting their life around this idea of time are not asking what time is it, but rather what is time for? This passage uses the word charon for time, the present times. It's not what time is it, it's what is time for. Here's a question for you and I. Is our life more oriented around Kronos or is our life oriented more around Charon? Those who know what time it is, Charon, are the truly wise. Do you know what God offers to his people to keep this established and on the forefront of our brains? It's what we're doing right now. It's Sabbath. If you're a Sabbath keeper, if you hit pause on regular life for the purpose of worship, it will stir up and keep Charon going in, in, in your mind. Be still and know what? That I am God, Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I am God. You know what doesn't allow you to be still in the Silicon Valley? Kronos, time. It's always marching. Some of you are are like me. You're always thinking, what else could I be doing? I was waiting yesterday for my kids. We we're all loaded up. We're going to go get a Christmas tree. And I couldn't sit still. I grabbed a rake and I started to rake the front lawn because it's like we could be doing something. That's chronos. That's like just this onward march. Now, it's not just setting a day aside for Sabbath. We know that can go really, really wrong. It's setting your heart aside, right? It's having an attitude of rest for the purpose of of worship. God structures one day in seven as a life-giving gift of time. It's an opportunity because there is some knowing in this life that is never pursued, it is only received. And often you receive it when you stop and stay still. In fact, I think nurturing stillness reminds me that I even have a soul. That's one of the byproducts of it. That I'm more than a body. Practicing Sabbath, again, not just a day, but an attitude, restores the get-to nature of life with God. And it reminds me of the chains of have-to living. 
that God frees us from. And hitting pause for worship reminds you that this life is only a season. The rabbis had a saying they were fond of saying that more than Israel ever kept the Sabbath, the Sabbath kept Israel. Man, there's a lot for us to learn in that. So Jesus is instructing us to know the seasons, the opportunity that is before us right now, but won't always be available. The story that he tells in verses 58 and 59, it's kind of like a little mind experiment where he says this, maybe you're going to court and this was happening to you, but what he's appealing to is common sense. Whether you've done this before or whether you could envision doing this, think on it. And he tells this little story. In the story, Jesus is the accuser. God is the judge and hell is prison. The lesson is this. Do not wait for judgment day. He says it this way. Make an effort to settle on the way. Do you know what the effort to settle with your adversary is on the way? Who is it, who is it that, that judges? God's going to be the judge. Our sin holds us condemned. The effort we make, ready, here it is, is to make a decision, a decision to receive the gift. Has the heavy lifting been done by you or by Jesus? By Jesus! But there's still an effort on your part. Make an effort. What's the effort? To make a decision, to trust and follow. I'm here to report Jesus makes this offer to you. You are to receive it. This is the effort you are to make. Uh, many of you participated in a little poll that Ben sent out this week. We just asked this simple question about, about how you came to a decision. Where were you when you made a decision for Christ? And from this, uh, a full 50% of you, ready, were either alone or with a friend or family member. That's how you came to a point of decision. Uh, we also had several who were at a kids or a youth program. Some were in a church service. Some were in a Bible study. Some were at a camp or retreat. Some were at a concert or special event. Here's why I wanted that poll to come up. It's not so much matters how you came to a point of decision, rather that you came to a point of decision. I also want to make it really clear that there's a wide variety of how God draws and woos us. Some do it in an instant. You're like the Apostle Paul. A blinding light hit me and I had my come to Jesus moment. It was instantaneous. Others of you say, I don't know that I could point to a specific day. I didn't have tears in my eyes. Billy Graham wasn't in my field of vision. I don't know. It just, there was sort of this process that happened. It matters not how, it matters that. We are called to a decision to place our life and trust in Christ. So we move to this idea of deciding for yourselves. Remember that we find ourselves in a story that leaves us with the choice. We aren't having sides just picked for us where we can just blame our family tree or say, well, this is the team I'm on. We find ourselves in a story where we're given the choice. And how we answer is up to us. I want you to think about Esau for a moment. Some of you are biblically literate. You immediately know who Esau is. In short, Esau has this dilemma. Esau had a decision to make as to whether to hold on to his rightful birthright as the eldest firstborn son or to trade his birthright away for a single meal. Now, placed in that situation, you're like, what idiot would do the single meal thing? Suspend judgment for a second. You might find yourself in, in Esau. That was Esau's decision. He chose the single meal. Here's his dilemma. Hebrews records it this way. It says, the godless person Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. Listen to this. For you know that even afterwards, when he, des when he desi de desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it with tears. Esau's dilemma is this. He made a choice in one season. It cost him in another season. The people of Noah's day, the ark of Noah is like an archetype of Jesus Christ. 
You get into Jesus Christ, you avoid the flood of judgment. You're saved. You live. Is it comfortable? Is it easy? Do your neighbors rejoice at your decision? No. In fact, all of that is not true. But that pales in comparison to the alternative. There were people who sought repentance with tears, knocking on the door of the ark. But the season, knowing the times, that opportunity had closed. So when we think about this idea of making a decision, we look at Esau's dilemma. There's coming a day when many will want to repent and receive Jesus, but it will not be found. Why? Because time, the charon, has passed. The opportunity has passed. This is why Hebrews says bluntly, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. You don't know what tomorrow brings. The effort is a decision about the offer Jesus makes. Listen to these words of Jesus, all involving a decision. Romans 3, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, hear the choice, I will come to him, eat with him, and he with me. Matthew 11, he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Listen to this choice. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and you will find rest for your souls. A a decision is involved. Let me give you one more. We just sang this. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Every one of these invitations is a different sort of spectrum But they all have this point of personal decision. Jesus doesn't crowbar his way in the door. He doesn't get a funnel and shove down what's good for you so you can drink. Every one of those is a choice left with us. Don't you wish someone else could work out for you? I mean, some of you love to work out. You're like, I'd gladly take a side job just working out for my buddy. Who's kind of like not good at working out and never does it. How about those of you who just love to eat healthy? You're like, yep, just kind of like it. I don't know. Wouldn't it be great if you could hire that person to eat healthy for you? Man, this is not how it works, is it? Parents, hear me really clearly. I was a youth pastor for a lot of years, and I watched the spectrum of parents about what they believed about these two passages based on some parenting. For those parents who didn't have a clear picture that Jesus stands at the door of their child's soul and knocks. What I saw was a parenting strategy that was like headlocking people into the kingdom. It was a little mini picture of the crusades. Man, what I want for you is best just trust dear Bumsy on this. And they would try to like sort of force because they lived in panic that they couldn't choose the very thing they wanted for their child. Now, in terms of the cost-benefit analysis of following Jesus, here's what I'll say, parents. Your actions, without your permission, show the ongoing belief that you have of what it looks like to follow Jesus Christ. If it costs you absolutely nothing, it will preach to your children, you are adding Jesus on to a life that you can live without him. If they watch you and they see in your actions, man, there is a real cost, and yet my folks seem to be living for something future that isn't yet, that will distill and instill deep into their lives. Let me have the band come on up right now. As we close and sing these two songs, I want you to consider the four soils parable that Jesus talked about. Jesus pictured this idea of good seed, the gospel, going out into four different kinds of soil. What was the success rate of the soil? 25%. One out of the four was the good soil that produced a lot of crop. What happens with the other situations is this. It illustrates these two truths side by sides. There must be a call to be answered. That's Jesus saying, follow me. But there's also a cost of ownership. That is Jesus saying, 
stay with me. What we see in the parable of the four soils is what we've seen in our own homes, in our childhood homes growing up, and that is this. The good seed can go forth, some will receive it, and it will quickly go away because the the cost was too high. Some won't receive it and, and, and go on their way. Some receive it as a child. They couldn't possibly count the cost. They're not really understanding that. But they have stayed with it as the costs have got higher and higher and higher. And they've proven to be the good soil. Would you close your eyes? Maybe this morning is your point of decision. Jesus' offer still stands. It's an offer of inheritance, eternal, life, eternal, deep peace with God, healing that covers everything else. And when you set that pearl of great price, as Jesus talked about, in comparison, all that we would give up looks like a bowl of soup. It looks like something temporary that would be a bad choice to make in its stead. If this morning is your point of decision, if today you hear his voice, don't wait. It's simply receiving, saying, Jesus, I confess freely, I agree with you that I'm on the wrong side of judgment and I want what you have to offer. I open the door of my heart. Would you come in and eat with me? Would you come in and be my Lord? I receive that. I bend the knee now willingly. Because I believe there's coming a day when all people will bend the knee willingly or unwillingly. And I want in right now. I want to make the effort now on the way to judgment day. God, if there are those in this room that you're speaking to, that you're stirring. God, would you just clarify in their hearts and minds what it is to follow Jesus. God, you have graciously withheld many, many confrontations and pains about what the road looks like, but you lovingly give at the point of decision a clear picture of what's to come. We pray, God, for those who have decided yes this morning, that they have received your gift of salvation. God, would you give them the courage just to say one small thing to someone in this room saying, hey, I've become a Christian this morning. I've said yes to Jesus for the first time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.